Christ, we do pray that our lives, and not only our lives, but our inward affections, our reasoning, our thinking, our desires, that are then reflected in life, would demonstrate those truths that we say all we have is you, O Christ, and that you, Father, have the right to use our ransomed lives as you deem fit, as best will promote your glory through the Son, that will best promote your glory on the earth. And though your ways are so often mysterious to us, inexplicable, so contrary at times to our own reasoning and our own thinking, yet they are always good, they are always wise, ordered by eternal love, eternal wisdom of him who declares the end from the beginning and works all things together for good and for your own glory. And this is magnificently displayed nowhere more clearly and wonderfully than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we come to you this morning, may you give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to feel and love and learn and wills to obey you and all things. We commit it to you and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to be back. I missed being with you last week. Thank you, Joe, for uh, bringing us to Psalm 2. And uh, I told him he has a... Uh, I, I figured I have 148 more Sundays I can be gone uh, as long as Joe's here. We're just going to march through the Psalms. Maybe we'll give him two, I said, for Psalm 119 because uh, there's a lot of verses there. Yeah, two weeks we can have for that. But I'm sorry I missed it. I will listen to it online, but I knew it was a wonderful time in God's Word looking at the glory and majesty of Christ. And we, of course, are in First Peter, but this morning we're going to take a little break and jump over to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation and zero in in chapter 1, and zero in on a few verses there, namely this vision of Christ that John the Apostle sees while he's banished on the island of Patmos for his testimony in Jesus Christ. And I want to introduce our thoughts this morning, which will be a very broad and general overlook of this self-revelation of Christ, but hopefully one that will encourage and edify our hearts. And it's one that we need. It's one that we need individually. It's one that we need as followers of Christ. It's a vision of Christ. It's a a reorienting of our thoughts towards Christ that we need as the church of God, the church of Christ. The contemporary presentation of Christ, and of course this isn't new just to our era. It isn't new just to our age. It's been prevalent throughout in different ways and shapes and forms throughout the history of the church. But the contemporary presentation of Christ is simply inadequate and distorted very often. We have a church that presents a Christ that seems to be more concerned with us being cool and being hipped and being accepted by the culture than the one who is Lord over the culture and Lord over the nations and Lord over the church. He's become far too approachable, Christ has, the risen Christ, and unintimidating to the unrepentant sinner. Too many people are comfortable sitting under the preaching of Jesus Christ and feel comfortable continuing on in their sins simply because the Jesus presented is not that threatening to them. As a matter of fact, he's quite understanding. He's quite patient toward them. 
And for those who actually do know Christ, the one that's presented or the view of Christ that's presented is one that's far too weak or superficial to many Christians to be the one who is the sovereign Lord whom we obey in all things and trust in all things as his blood-bought children, as slaves of him who is the sovereign Lord, who demands obedience explicitly and comprehensively. And maybe even something a little more subtle is he's not presented or at least embraced by many as the one who can be trusted in every vicissitude of life, in the struggles and the complexities and the confusions and the sufferings and the discouragements and the disappointments of life. But when we see Christ as he is, when we understand God as he is, when we see him as the one who is the sovereign Lord over all of life and over the church, the creator and the redeemer of all things, the one for whom all things were created, the one who rules over them, and he who is the end of all things, then our hearts are recalibrated to trust him. Our hearts are recalibrated to be able to obey him with joy, even in difficult situations and circumstances of life. So there is a question then that's always before all men and before the church about who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Well, I want to take just a moment this morning to answer that with Jesus's own words in the book of Revelation. And we'll be looking this morning particularly at verses 9 through 18, but zeroing in mostly on verses 17 through 18 in three titles or four self-descriptions of Jesus that reveal his sovereign glory as Lord of the universe. And he gives these descriptions through John in his own time and then to us who are also members of his body and the church to both comfort them in their suffering, to remind them that in the midst of all that they're going to endure for their testimony of Christ, that he is the sovereign Lord who is in control... And so there is, a, there is a word of comfort here to the people of God. And there's also a word here in these self-revelations of confrontation to those who would continue to walk in sin. Even as these letters will be addressed to the church primarily confronting them. Except for one, the message to Smyrna is the only one, as you're maybe well aware, without condemnation. The rest are to confront and to call this church back to the love of God, the love of Christ, and to obedience and to truth. But this is a message to the church. This is a message then to us. He says this at the very beginning, right in the book of verse 11, what you see and send it to the seven churches. Seven churches that are historical churches then, dealing with real issues then, but are also representative of the church through all the ages. He says in verse 12 that he is the one that's, in verse 13, is in the middle of the lampstands. And the lampstands he'll later describe are the seven churches. So these are then words to us to embrace that we might recalibrate and be encouraged and comforted and confronted about who the risen Christ is. As I mentioned, we'll see four self-disclosures of the risen Lord. Namely, that He's the sovereign Lord of glory, He's the sovereign Lord of history, He's the sovereign Lord of redemption, and He's the sovereign Lord of judgment. Let's begin just by reading the passage. So look at me in verse... Begin with me in verse 9, and we'll read Revelation 1, verse 9, down through verse 18. 
I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand... He held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Majestic picture from the lips of the risen Lord himself. Let's look briefly just at the initial description that John has and see Christ as the sovereign Lord of glory. Remember, this is the resurrected and the ascended Christ. This is a depiction of the Christ who is even now at the right hand of the Father for us. This is the Christ of the church. This is the Christ of eternal glory. This is the Christ of the cross and of the resurrection and the ascension. He is then the Christ, the sovereign Lord of glory. Now, John is already, as we mentioned, here on the island of Patmos. He's there, he's banished, he's, he's been put uh, away because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Probably in the spirit there is best understood as under the influence and the control wrapped up in the spirit the spirit who has taken over John's mind in, a sense, in, in the sense of uh, revealing of revelation. He was taking him to a place of vision in which he'll see things that are both real and true and yet designed also to give a certain impression and impact to him and to us. He was in the spirits on the Lord's day. Most likely Sunday there, almost absolutely the day of Sunday, commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where the church has met throughout our ages. And he says, as he's here on this island, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. The trumpet here is, is reminiscent of the voice of God, the voice of God on Mount Sinai is most likely what he has as the background here. Exodus 19.6 says, So it came about on the third day, this is when God had met with his people, delivering them out of Egypt at Mount Sinai, where he's going to give them the law, establish the Mosaic Covenant. He says, It came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. They trembled at the sound of the trumpet, and that's the imagery here. He, he spoke with divine authority, divine majesty, divine holiness, divine power. It was the voice of a trumpet. 
an intimidating sound, really, but one that's reflecting the majesty of the risen Christ. It was a, the sound of a trumpet that even as in the Old Testament, when God spoke from Sinai, it was to impact the people who heard with who he really was in his divine majesty that they would obey him in the land. And here it is a message then of divine authority that is to make an impression upon us, the church. And so he says, in hearing this voice like the sound of a trumpet, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. So that they may know the one who speaks to them is the Lord of glory. And then he says in verse 12 that I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Notice he doesn't initially see where the voice is emanating from, but he sees what is going to be the object of the message, namely these seven golden lampstands later identified as the church. In verse 20, he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And the idea is there, the, where this voice was coming from, whose voice was this, and what he saw in these lampstands in the middle is one like a son of man. And here he's pulling from the imagery, most certainly of Daniel. If you'll remember in this great imagery of the kingdom that was to come, in the midst of both the judgment and in the future, the redemption of his people. He says this in verse 9. Of, don't turn there unless you want to. But in Daniel 9, 7, he says he's looking. He sees a, a thrones that are set up. The ancients of day, the ancient of days, the father there seating on his throne. His hair, is, his hair, the hair of his head is like pure wool. His throne is ablaze. There's a river of fire coming out. You get this majestic picture of God who is the ruler of his people, the ruler of the nations, the one who's going to act in judgment. Then he says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented to him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Christ of course is called the son of man throughout the gospels which has a reflection both of his union with humanity. It is, a, it is a reflection, it is a statement of his full humanity. It is also a reflection and a statement of his divine nature, his deity. He is the son of man. Not only the son who became man, not only a son who is in the likeness of men, not only a son who has the full reality of humanity, but the son that is the eternal son who, as we read in Colossians, is the head over all things for whom they were created, through whom they were created, and who accomplished redemption and rules over the nations. He is the one who has absolute dominion. It speaks here then of his authority as the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. He reflects this Matthew 28, 18. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Christ has absolute authority as the Son of Man. He then says, describes him as being clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. These are quite simply garments of both the king, the royal kings of the ancient Near East in that time. 
They are the garments, more particularly, of the high priest. And the imagery here is that Christ stands at the right hand of God as the one who is our king, but as the one who is our high priest. He's the one who holds this priesthood forever. He is the one who holds this priesthood for his people. He is also the one who holds this priesthood as king and the one with all authority. He goes on to describe him. He said his hair, head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. This is a picture of his absolute holiness and purity. And that's going to be a particularly powerful imagery as he writes to the church as he is the one who is going to confront their sin. Essentially, it is, I am the one who knows your deeds, he's going to tell them. I am the one who knows your sin. And he also is the one who knows their righteousness for those who are tested and faithful. But for those who are not, the one who is pure like wool will purify and come to purify his church. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. And all of these, again, are, are reflecting his divine nature as the glorified Son. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Not only is he himself pure, only is he not he himself without sin, only is he himself holy with the holiness of God. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is the one that sees with his piercing omniscience. And so he'll tell the church at Thyatira in verse 18, he is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. And he says in verse 19, as mentioned, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service. But I also know other things that are going on. In their case, the tolerance of false teaching and of sin. He's the one with the eyes like the flame of fire. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He knows our sins. And he knows the sincerity of our faith. He continues to start from the head and move down. And he says, His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. There's some debate over here of what exactly he's describing. He's probably here a picture of his kingly glory reflecting the sight of kings who sat on elevated thrones and their feet were prominent to those who approached the throne who were below the throne. Again, speaking of his kingly authority and dignity and majesty. It's also... Described this idea of burnished bronze, of angels in Daniel's vision, the one, the messenger in chapter 10, verse 6, and divine messengers in Ezekiel 1, 7. can reflect his strength, his stability. He says, then he spoke and his voice was like the sound of many waters and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Interestingly, this exact description is used in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. Again, this is reflecting the, the shared glory, the shared divine nature with the Father. He says this, just listen, in verse 43, chapter, or chapter 43, verse 2 of Ezekiel, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth Shown with his glory. 
He's speaking here with all divine authority. And his words come not only with authority, but with piercing clarity and absolute assurance that he will accomplish his will. In fact, he says in verse 2, he's going to use that same imagery of chapter 14. He says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. And this voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Just before he's going to give the vision of the gospel and the doom for the beast and those who worship the beast and false believers. It's the sound of many waters. It's the sound of authority. It's the, the sound of divine statement of power. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And this is primarily focused on his words of judgment. His words of judgment. He says in verse 16 of chapter 2, speaking to the church at Pergamum, he says, therefore, after he's Revealed to them the areas where there is sin. He says, therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's the authority of God. It is words of judgment that he will accomplish. Interesting. He says the same thing in chapter 19 in that picture of Christ returning in his glory. He's the one on the horse. He's the one with the armies. And he is the one of whom it is said in verse 15, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This is a word then of judgment. He says in verse 21 of Revelation 19, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is a majestic picture here then of the risen Christ. The one who is reflecting the authority and the glory of God. The one who is preparing his people for judgment. As Peter will say later, we've mentioned this. If judgment begins with the household of God, then what does that imply for those who reject Christ? And here, even at the beginning of Revelation, there is going to be this piercing, purifying, sanctifying, and judging, and confronting, and comforting word of God to his church. He's the one that speaks with divine authority, divine glory, and his words are words of judgment, purifying judgment for his church, and destroying judgment for those who are outside of his saving grace. And then he gives this last description here, and he says, And his face, in verse 16, was like the sun shining in all of its strength. And here really is the glory that was anticipated in the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember he's shown before them. And he said this is the glory, his glory that of when he's coming in his kingdom. And here this glory, that same glory is reflected in this vision of him at the right hand of God as the sovereign Lord of glory. And John's reaction is understandable. It says, when I saw him in verse 17a, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I fell at his feet like a dead man. I wonder how many sermons about Christ or how many, how many passages of Scripture we read about Christ 
that produce in us this kind of reverence at his glory. I fell at his feet as a dead man, overwhelmed by the sight of Christ. And this is a right response. It's a response that we're familiar with when men come into the presence of Christ, they come into the presence of God. It was the response of Isaiah in chapter 6 when he saw the holiness of the Lord, train of his robe filling the temple, the angels surrounded him, crying out his holiness. He fell to the ground and he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. The response of Manoah, Samson's father, when he saw the angel of the Lord, he says, We will surely die, for we have seen God. It was the response of Peter when he realized in the boat in Luke 5 8 that he was in the boat with Christ. It says he fell down. He said, depart from me or go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Four times it says Ezekiel fell on his face in the vision that he received from God. And so it is here with John. And what's really striking here about John's reaction to the risen Christ is who he is. This is the Apostle John. This is the John who walked with him through all of his days on earth, who walked with him in ministry. This is John who could describe him as, in 1 John 1, what we've seen with our own eyes, what we looked at, what we touched with our hands. This is John who was just 60 years earlier with Christ, leaning on his breast in intimate companionship and fellowship at the Lord's Supper, who whispered over to him who it was that Jesus had identified was going to betray him. This is the John who Jesus loved, but now he's not leaning on his chest, but he's falling down like a dead man, overwhelmed with the transcendent glory of the living Christ. And again, there is that intimate familiarity that we are to have with Christ, of John leaning on his breast at the supper. That's a a tender picture of the kind of fellowship that God invites us into with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should have that sort of tender approach to God through Christ. We approach the throne of grace with confidence because Christ has made a way. But... There is the other side too, and that is the Christ as the sovereign Lord of glory. The Christ that we confront sometimes, particularly when we sin, but the Christ that we confront sometimes with such a sight of his glory that we do feel as if we just want to crawl away and hide from him who is so wonderful, who is so majestic. And so both of those are true. Both of those are true. There is this tender intimacy, and yet it is not the intimacy of common familiarity, but the intimacy of love and gratitude of one who is so majestically glorious that he has allowed us into his presence. And so it is a confidence mixed with a proper fear, mixed with gratitude and love. That's what Peter said. If you address the one whom we call as father, the intimate term of father, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay here on earth. And so John has a right response, but look at the tenderness of Christ in verse 17. And he, being this risen Christ, the one he saw in the midst of the land stamps, placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. And that really, in short, is the gospel message, the gospel story. Do not be afraid. I submit to you that the most reasonable and right response of seeing the full majesty and glory of the Lord is fear. 
That, that's what we should fear. That's right. It's reasonable. It's unreasonable not to have that response. But, instead of squashing down this one whom he's revealing himself to, he reaches out with intimate touch, and he touches him. And you can't help but think of the many times throughout the gospel, there's this intimate nearness of Christ who touched those whom he healed, touched the eyes of the blind man, touched the woman, or the woman touched him who was hemorrhaging for all of those years. And here he reaches out and he touches John. And this is a reminder, this is a footnote here, that he is physical even in heaven. He's forever united to humanity. He touched him, why? Because he is the son of man. He is in all of his divine glory, God the Son, but he is also man, the Messiah, our high priest who accomplished redemption for us who is at his right hand. And so there's, there's tenderness here, there's comfort that he reached down and he touched him and he touched him. Gracious, tender command followed, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. But then following that, he gives three descriptions. Now, I'm going to try to finish these really quick. And so that means I'm going to hit about 20% of the notes that I have in front of me. But I want us to at least go over these descriptions and say, who is this? He is the sovereign Lord of glory. He is the one of full majesty and authority and wonder and power. He is the one that should impress us not only with his tenderness, but with his holiness. And he describes himself in three ways. He describes himself as the Lord of history, the Lord of redemption, and the Lord of judgment. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, And I saw him, John did. I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me. Do not be afraid. And he says, First, I am the first and the last and the living one. This is an incredible statement. It's a comprehensive declaration of not only his eternality and his sovereignty and his, and his deity, but of his deity. It is essentially saying, I am the first and the last. He here is taking the words ascribed to God in the Old Testament, applying them to himself and saying, I am your sovereign Lord, the Lord of the church. I am one in glory, one in power, one in majesty, one in authority, one in sovereignty with the Father. I am the first and I am the last. And the I am statements, of course, go back to the beginning of Exodus 3.14 when the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush before God gave him the command to be the one whom he chose to go deliver his people from Israel and deliver a message to Pharaoh that God was going to deliver his people. It was the name of God by which his people were to call him and identify him as both their creator and their redeemer. The one who is alone, holy. I am who I am, he said, the angel of the Lord did to Moses from the bush. His covenant name. You're familiar, Yahweh in the Hebrew. Some vowels added Later to make, to make it Adonai. Or Adonai also speaking of his lordship. 
uh, Jehovah, excuse me. The vowels added is Jehovah, we sometimes call it. But Yahweh is what it is in the Hebrew. It speaks of his self-existence, his power, his faithfulness, his eternality, his infinitude. All of those things that set him off as the one and only divine being from whom are all things. I am, he said. And Christ is here taking that on to himself as he has many times throughout the Gospels. He is... By his own words, Jesus, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. All of those identifying him as equal to God. Let me just give you one verse here and remind you of it. In John chapter 8, it's that claim that, that was particularly provoking to the religious leaders, the claim he made in different ways when he forgave sin, as the one who has the authority to forgive sin on earth. But also he does here in John chapter 8, let me just read this to you, after a really tense conversation that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders, rather than softening any claim, he ramps it up after he just told them they were basically sons of the devil. He then says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They understood clearly what Jesus was saying. I I predated Abraham, and in fact, I'm the one who revealed myself to Moses. I am equal to the one whom you call God. And here he speaks in the same way, I am the first and the last. And it's not only the statement, I am, but this I am the first and the last is directly linked to three self-disclosing statements of Yahweh in the Old Testament as he revealed himself as the only true God who would deliver his people and is sovereign over the nations. This is where we get in that statement that he is the sovereign Lord of history. He is the sovereign Lord of history. Let me just remind you of some of them. And again, I know lately, I think, it seems like we've been in Isaiah a few times and you've been reminded that there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a simple division of Isaiah that happens around at chapter 40 where he's changing his address. Before that, he's addressing the people primarily being prepared for judgment. And chapter 40, he's addressing the people whom he's going to deliver from judgment. And remember that the people he's addressing are... Out of the land, they are the ones who are still experiencing the consequences of his judgment, the dispersion, the exile into a foreign land, taken prisoner, the temple lay in ruins, the Jerusalem lay in ruins, the land of Judah lay in ruins and unoccupied. So he's speaking to a people where that is their historical experience and he's reminding them that indeed my promises are true. I am still your God. I will not neglect my covenant. And so he says in verse 41... God does through Isaiah. He says, The coastlands listen to me in silence. Let the people again gain new strength. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. He who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet, he delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Listen to verse 4. Who has performed and accomplished this, calling forth the generations from the beginning? 
I, the Lord, Yahweh, am the first, and with the last, I am He. In other words, God is saying the nations that are now ruling over you are the nations that I rule over as God. He said at the beginning of the chapter, the nations are like a speck of dust. They're meaningless. They're nothing before the God who is, the God who reigns, and the God who is going to act on behalf of Israel. And he, he sums that up with simply saying, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. The kings who I raised up to punish you are the kings that I will cast down in punishment. The king I will raise up to deliver you is the king that is obeying my will because I am the Lord of history. I am accomplishing this. As a matter of fact, he'll be more specific over in verse 44. Who is this king? Or chapter 44, who is this king of the east? He's going to identify him in verse 28. Of chapter 44, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So God raised up the king of Babylon to send his people into exile. He raised up the king of Assyria to send the northern tribes into exile. And now he's saying he's going to raise up the king that's going to destroy the king of Babylon and will deliver you. And I'm going to do this. And he mentions him by name. And just as a point of interest, this is approximately 150 years before Cyrus, this would happen. Cyrus wasn't even in existence. His parents weren't even alive at this point. And yet God is making the point that I'm the one who declares the end from the beginning. And why is he doing that? He says in verse 6 of chapter 45 that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Your situation is what it is. He's saying here, O Israel, because I am the one who's created it. Your situation in the future will be what it is, is because I am the one who has done it. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. He'll make the statement again in chapter 44, which says 6 to 8. Talking here of deliverance, he says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Yes, let them recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are to take place. I've mentioned this before. I want to mention it again just as a way of reminder that God's ability to declare the future, in other words, God's prophetic word in which he declares the things that will take place, is one of the greatest demonstrations of his absolute sovereignty and glory in all of Scripture. None but the God who is, none but the God who rules over his creation, none but a God with absolute sovereignty and power can declare the events in human history before they happen. Do you realize the immense complexity of events that take place in one rising to power as a king and a nation falling? God is sovereign over all of them. And he declares that sovereignty with this statement by saying, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God before me. So in other words, 
One of the encouragements to them, and reflected in Revelation, Jesus' statement is this, that your current situation has no bearing on God's ultimate plan. God is sovereign. God has determined what he will do, and God will bring it to pass because he has declared it to be so, and he has determined it to be so. Who can thwart his decision? None. He will accomplish all that concerns his people, He will accomplish all that concerns us. Let me just give you one more. Isaiah 48, 10 through 16. He says, verse 9, actually, he says, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. For my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? In my glory, I will not Give to another. And then listen to verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Who among them has declared these things? And then he says, his arms will be against the Chaldeans. And I, even I, have spoken. Indeed, I have called him. I have brought him. And he will, I will make, and he will make his way successful. This is the imagery that Jesus is picking up when he reveals himself to the church and to us. He is the sovereign Lord of history. Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last. The kingdoms that will rise and the kingdoms that will fall are under my sovereign hand. The kingdoms and the kings that will persecute you are under my sovereign hand. They are accomplishing my will. It is not the will of men. It is not the will of the evil one. It is my will who is accomplishing my purpose. Know that I am the Lord of history. The Lord of history. One has said this, a helpful comment. It says, the expression functions in verse 17 to assure John and his readers that Christ is in control of the vicissitudes of history, that is the changing realities of history, nations fall and rise and so forth. However bad they seem, indeed, he is the force behind history, causing it to fulfill its purposes. Such confidence in Christ's sovereignty will guard the readers against despair and consequent compromise with the world's view of things. It doesn't mean we understand it. As a matter of fact, there's so much that happens that's just a sheer mystery to us. As a matter of fact, it goes against our human reason. Both in the world and in the nations and in our own lives. But what we do know is that he who is the risen Lord, the one through whom all things were created, the one who stands as head, is the one who also stands as a ruler and Lord over them. There is no authority but that which comes from God. Now again, this is going to be particularly important for his original readers and for us as the church and for those in the future. Why? Because some pretty heinous things are going to happen at the end times, aren't they? Some pretty massive rebellions. So much so that he describes in the vision of those who are beheaded because of the testimony of Christ during the tribulation are going to be beyond number. And yet, the point of the statement is to say, but God determined that. 
God is in control even of the rise of the Antichrist. He's in control even of the deception that's going to take over the world. He's in control of the hatred of his church and his own ways that's going to mark and be characteristic of the end age. There's no authority but that which comes from God. Let me just give you a few examples. And it turns out I won't finish. But listen to this. In verse... 3 of chapter 6, he says, the angels that God, that Christ sent, remember he received the scroll, he broke its seals. The seals are the unfolding here, the initial judgments of God at the beginning of this age. It says in verse 3 of chapter 6, the second seal, he says, when he broke the second seal, I heard, that's Christ, I heard the second living creature saying, come, and another, a red horse went out, and him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace. Look at that phrase. It was granted to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. What does it mean it was granted? It means it was granted by Christ to do that. It says in verse 8, the fourth seal death, I looked and behold as ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him and authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. Authority was given to him. Who gave him the authority? Men? Satan? The risen Lord gave authority that the sword would kill a fourth of the earth that famine and pestilence would come. Chapter 7, verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Who granted it? God did. Chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 5. He says, there's the bottomless pit, demons came out. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of scorpions when it stings a man. The point is, who gave that authority? The risen Christ gave that authority. Let me mention just one more. What about chapter 13? This is the rise of the dragon out of the sand of the seashore, the beast coming up out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, and so forth. Descriptions reflecting also back again to Daniel and the vision there. The beast I saw was like a leopard. And he goes on and describes him. He says, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And so it is the dragon who is behind the authority of this beast, this antichrist, and the one who is behind the authority of the false prophet. But then look back down at verse 5, and it says, There was given to him a mouth speaking words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and that is those who dwell in heaven. Says the same thing in verse 7. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Now, who's giving this authority? Well, some see this as it is the authority still of the dragon. But it's better to see here that who's the one giving the authority, the same who gave the authority ultimately even to the dragon to act, and it is 
the risen Christ. If it was the dragon, this certainly wouldn't be an authority that's limited to exactly 42 months as prophesied and determined by God to accomplish his purposes. So who even has the authority ultimately over the false prophet and the beast and even the works of Satan himself? Remember, Satan had to come to to God to ask permission even for what he did to Job. Satan acted in a certain kind of authority given to him, but he acted under the sovereign authority of God. And so it is in our age, and so it is in every age. Now, let me just wrap this up in this way. The understanding that he is the Lord of glory and he is the sovereign Lord of history. Understanding Christ's absolute sovereignty over history and every event of life should be a perspective or that we have that guards us against despair or being overly preoccupied with the events of this world as if God were not accomplishing his purpose determined before the foundation of the world. He is the sovereign Lord. Matter of fact, this is exactly what he's going to say to the church at Smyrna. Do not fear, verse 10, about what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Know that you are being tested. It is, yes, by the evil intentions of the devil, but it is the sovereign purposes of God. He doesn't explain to him why they're the ones that will go this tribulation. He doesn't explain why it's 10 days. He simply says it will be this way. Be faithful and I will give you the crown of life. Again, it's just like in 1 Peter. He says for now, even though for a little while, it is necessary that you are tested by various trials. That the testing of your faith, the proof of your faith may be found to be more precious than gold when tested by fire. And result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's to remind us that we are to persevere whatever the times may bring. Christ is not sitting up at the right hand of the Father nervously waiting for poll results of an election. He's not nervously waiting to see if the church is going to mess things up and his purposes are going to fail for the church. He's not waiting up there wringing his hands to see who will believe in him and who won't and what's going to happen when the culture changes and rejects Christ and repudiates his holiness and his authority. He's not anxious about these things. He's Lord over them. Sometimes you'll hear comments of people in the church that will say, you know, if we don't adapt to the culture and if we don't change our ways, the church is going to die. Church isn't going to die. Christ is Lord over the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He might judge his people for their disobedience to his truth, but his truth will not fail. It will stand and he will accomplish his purposes. And he is the living one. He is the living one. What does that mean though for us also in terms of our personal lives? What does that mean for us in our personal lives means this as well. The ultimate message here, of course, is to the churches. It's a message of comfort to us in times of persecution and in a culture and in government and a world system that's so decidedly set against the purposes of God and his glory. And this is comfort to us 
to say, yes, we need to care about the events of life. Yes, we need to be involved as we ought to be. But those are not ultimate. They're not ultimate. And we need to live in a way that reflects that. But what about even in our own lives? Some of you are dealing with difficulty, frustrations, anxiety, discouragement. Not only of issues of our country, but issues in your own lives. And he's reminding us here that every detail of his creation is under his sovereign hand. It doesn't mean that we understand it. It does mean that we need to trust that he's Lord over it. Speaking about Isaiah 45, I'm going to wrap it up with this. Isaiah 45, 7, where he says, I am the one causing light and darkness who creating light and darkness, the one causing well-being and calamity. One commentator, commentator says this. And let me just note here, uh, just as a little footnote before I read this. This is not to say that God is the cause of evil. It is to say that he rules over evil as Lord of his creation. He directs evil. He even uses evil. He even ultimately ordained evil. But he doesn't cause it. But he does direct it for his own purposes. And again, we can't fully understand that, but we understand with confidence that he's Lord over even all of these things. But what about in our own lives? Let me, let me just mention this. Uh, and I couldn't say it better than this. Let me give what one commentator on Isaiah 45 says this. What the prophet is saying is this, that if bad conditions exist in my life, they are not there because some evil God has thwarted the good intentions of a kindly but ineffectual grandfather God who would like me to have good conditions but cannot bring them about. They are there solely as a factor of my relations to the one God. They may be there because I have sinned against his natural and moral laws, or they may be there because by their means I can become more like him, or they may be there for reasons that he cannot explain to me. But they are not there in spite of God. He is the only uncaused cause in the universe. So there is much that causes us to cry out to God for mercy, for understanding, for wisdom. There's much that we can't explain. But this word here to John and this word to us as the church is that Christ is Lord over them. We can trust him and trust him. And that's what trust is, by the way. It's trusting him for things that we can't control and can't understand. And that's why we're never going to find comfort for trying to work out the details of God's sovereign plan in our life or his world. We're going to find comfort by knowing who he is and his character and his majesty and his sovereignty. That's where our comfort lies. Because we're going to go to the grave with more questions than we have than answers. Hopefully they'll be answered and maybe in heaven we'll certainly see them from a much clearer sight than we do from here. Well, we'll, just because I started, we will finish up the other two uh, next week. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for these encouragements that you give to us. We thank you so much that you have even in all of your majesty and all of your glory, acted with such tenderness towards your people. You say to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Trust you. Trust you. Know that while fear is a right response of a creature before the presence of a creator and a sinner 
before the presence of one who is so holy. We have in you, Christ, in your death and resurrection, been reconciled, forgiven, and we will stand before you holy and blameless because you have made it so. And you've declared it to us. And I pray that if there's any here who don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. And help us, Lord, who walk and stumble through this life and who so easily are distracted and overly concerned with the mysteries and the discouragements to find renewed hope and strength and encouragement by remembering that you are the sovereign Lord over our lives and over history. And you are also the one who is merciful to us. And when we are overburdened with things that are too much for us to bear, we can cast our anxieties on you who cares for us and cry out for mercy. And you are so faithful, so faithful to your word to always give it. And so these things we pray in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I will